0: Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory.
1: What sort of leader do you want? What sort of leader do you look to? Um, Ali, if you flick on the next slide, please, there's a picture here that sort of captures at least one understanding an idea of leadership you know the pioneer who's out in front of the crowd cutting the way but slightly distant slightly removed from the rest I think we've seen some extraordinary things this week I already mentioned Deborah James and just the massive influence and the impact that she's had but on Monday last week a statement was released to the media that stunned them It started like this, I believe in honor, integrity, and the principle that those who make the laws must follow them. This is a matter of principle and honor for me. It's about who I am and what I stand for. Is that ringing any bells as to who made that announcement? It came from a politician, Keir Starmer. He carried on, if the police decide to issue me with a fixed penalty notice, I would, of course, do the right thing and step down. It matters because British public deserve politicians who think the rules apply to them. Now, regardless of the politics and the context, it's fascinating that the media were stunned by that statement and the public declaration that someone, not just Keir Starmer, but Angela Rayner as well as the deputy leader, would resign over this, would step down. At a time of fake news and disinformation and cover-ups and self-promotion, these statements were like opening a window in a small room where there were festering eggs. It changed something. It shocked the press. Because here were two people, whatever we think about their politics and stuff like this, that were saying there's something more that matters there's a line there's an integrity and you see in some way it resonated with that thing that i think people still hold that and we still value that we want leadership of substance not show we want leadership of integrity not trash talk And it would be easy to think as we open up the Bible that, oh, we're going back into some old, fusty, historical place that bears very little relevance to where we're living in Manchester in 2022. And yet here in the first century, in in the time and culture of this uh, newly planted Christian church in Greece, in Thessalonica, they faced the same problems about leadership. There were competing ideologies and faiths with lots of skepticism about the claims to ultimate truth. There was a cynicism about the motives and integrity of those who would come in and preach and teach alternative philosophies and worldviews and lifestyles. And into that environment, the Apostle Paul preached the good news of Jesus Christ, as we've seen in chapter 1, the Son of God who rescues us from judgment, who brings us to salvation, to know this and serve the true and living God. You see... We're told there in chapter 1, verse 8, and we were looking at this last week, Paul dared to say in verse 6, you became imitators of us, Paul, Timothy, Silas's mission team, and of the Lord. There was a modeling going on and an integrity to what they saw. And then in verse 8, we're told, and you also became a model to all the believers, like a peal of bells. The Lord's message rang out for you. This Thessalonica church was like the show home on an estate that's just to be built. They were the first sign of what's to come, the thing that people walk around and look at to see what's coming next. And Paul's character and ministry, though, had come under fire. Probably by the religious Jews and the religious Greeks that drove him out of that city. He left Thessalonica, remember, in Acts 17 in darkness at night time. It was a quick exit. And he hadn't been back since. And that's at least probably several months, if not a year's gap between when he was first there for maybe a month or so. And then uh, as he's now getting this news from Timothy and writing to them. There's a gap. And was he just another con man who made his money? Was he just another trickster? Was he just full of all these sort of promises, but then did a runner when the trouble came, couldn't deliver? You could see how if someone's spreading that sort of rumor, that sort of criticism, it would destabilize these Christians, wouldn't it? It would destabilize any church if you had that whispering, those conversations happening all over the place, people asking those questions without transparency, without just the discussions. And so Paul needs to reassure them that this message, his message, and himself as a messenger are authentic. It's genuine. And so in this opening letter, having given such deep thanks to God in chapter 1, here in chapter 2, he gives us the hallmarks of authentic gospel ministry. And this is so important to us. This speaks directly into where we are, not just as a church, but in life. Because he implores the Thessalonians to remember their experience of his work. Look at this, six times he says, I hope you heard it as Lydia was reading, you know, you remember, you witnessed. They'd seen his work firsthand. He's asking them to recall. And so verses 1 to 12 are highly relevant. They're challenging to every believer today as we consider what godly living looks like, what gospel godly living ministry looks like. And each Christian If you follow Jesus, you're a minister. You're on his team. You have a responsibility as his ambassador, empowered by him, anointed by his Holy Spirit, to live his way. That's what you sign up to. That's what you give your life to. That's what we've been singing about. We are Jesus' ambassadors. We have a responsibility to go to people with his good news. We have a responsibility to work in his community, his church. We have a responsibility as ambassadors to do the work he's given us, where he's placed us which for the majority of us will be day-to-day, week-by-week, with our colleagues at work, with the responsibilities we we have there, with our children, with our parents, with our friends, with the members of our family, in our schools, in our colleges and unis, with those we see socially, whether that's at the gym or the school gate or the pub or wherever it is. We live out as ambassadors of God's gospel there. So this is an issue for us. Because the issue is not that whether we have influence or how much influence. It's actually we all have. We're all influencers. Stuff, Instagram and social media stuff. You're all influencers. You're all Christ ambassadors. And the question is, how will you use that? What impact will it have? And that's what matters. So let's have a look at this passage together. Don't switch off. Don't let's say, oh, no, this is just for people like Pete and elders and stuff like that. It isn't. And the first thing I want to say as we look at these hallmarks is here in verses 1 to 6 is that the biggest hallmark here is pleasing God. And we see that first with Paul in steadfast suffering. His his mission in Thessalonica wasn't uh, empty. what he says there um, in in, in verse 1. It wasn't empty. It wasn't without results. It wasn't vain. Why? Well, Paul doesn't appeal. Did you notice this? He doesn't appeal to numbers, which would be the automatic thing I think we do. is, oh, well, there was 200 people there on that evening, and on that Sunday, 150. He doesn't do that. What does he say? No, he highlights that the suffering that he and Silas faced in Philippi, the place they'd been before, was their commitment to keep on declaring the gospel in the face of suffering. Actually, the Greek word there for opposition, for conflict, is agonai. And, and you'll hear that, how we use that word, agony. It's in that opposition and conflict he carried on preaching the gospel. You see, Philippi wasn't a walk in the park. They were arrested. There was no trial. They were flogged. They were beaten. They were shamefully treated. And then they had to move on. And no doubt, if you put yourself in their shoes, that's a painful experience, isn't it? Um, Anyone else, including me, would be going, you know what, guys? We've had Philippi. Shall we book a two-week break on the Mediterranean? Yeah? Bit of beach and sangria. Like, chill out. We deserve it. What does Paul do? No, let's move on. Thessalonica. Bruised, battered, hurt, feeling crushed. Let's go to the next city with the same gospel. Verse 2. With the help of God, we dared, we pushed on frailty and all to tell you the gospel. You see, a hallmark of gospel ministry, successful evangelism is faithfulness. It's not numbers. It's pushing on with the gospel despite the difficulties. And later in verse 9, Paul, Timothy, and Silas' steadfastness, their commitment is seen in their earnest labor. They say they're working night and day. Presumably, that's to earn money to support the ministry costs so they could support themselves. And we need to be honest. The fact that telling others about Jesus, it does require courage, doesn't it? It does require perseverance in the face of knockbacks. We all face it in different ways. There's a pain line of discomfort that we have to walk over as we live our loyalty to Jesus in the everyday. There's a the discomfort of rejection, the risk of rejection from people we care about. But prayerful perseverance, gentle steadfastness, even in suffering, is a hallmark of authentic gospel living and leadership. The second thing that's pointed out is that the gospel is not a deceit. Ali, I think if you um, scroll on, it might be, yeah, in suffering. And then next, there we go, no deceit. Verse 3, for the appeal we make does not spring from error, nor are we trying to trick you. You see, Paul isn't an illusionist. His gospel message has already been verified by the apostles in Jerusalem. He was teaching truth. He had received it from Jesus Christ. He preached it. It was authenticated, it's valid. He's not an illusionist, he's not using distraction or sleight of hand or the power of suggestion to get them to believe things that aren't a reality. He's not been persuading them to believe what he knows is a lie. A few years ago, I watched um, Darren Brown's Miracle Show. It's still on Netflix, and I do recommend it. Um, I don't agree with everything in it. Um, Essentially, his uh, disbelief in God and miracles. (laughs) But what's fascinating is the whole show is Darren Brown reproducing a faith healing. It's his parody on those who would prosper and use faith healing as a way of bringing people in and manipulating them. And it's fascinating to watch. It's very uncomfortable. And yet as I watched it, I realized he was doing the gospel a service because he was showing the fakeness of this parody, not the reality and the ultimate truth of Christ's gospel and the supernatural power to bring dead sinners to life in God. But it was interesting. I was thankful that he was doing a service of actually showing the techniques and false ways in which people who say they're gospel preachers and tricksters work. But for Paul, there's no cover-up. There's no tricks, there's no deceit. He shares the message of the risen Jesus. Plain, clear, reasoned, Old Testament scriptures open, eyewitness account, and there's no impure motives as well. Did you notice that? Well, what's this impurity that's in view here? Literally, the word is uncleanness. It's in the sense of immorality, and that certainly would have included sexual immorality. You see, ancient literature shows that traveling pagan teachers and philosophers amassed wealth through their fine-sounding rhetoric. Nothing much has changed, has it? Those who have the popular voice in culture, with the books and the streaming and the YouTube hits and stuff like this, it generates money. A lot of it. And some didn't care about the truth that they were peddling. They shifted their messages depending on what the listeners wanted to hear. They'd even engage in sexual relations with followers. They'd sponge off the rich. Now, sadly, throughout history, and especially in the last few years, in evangelical Christian circles, many Christian leaders have done just that. They've used their spiritual power to seduce, to get sex, thinking they deserve it thinking it's a reward. They get money and jets and big houses, and they put them in offshore investment accounts. It's diabolical, and you know what? God sees it, and he will judge it, and I praise him for that. But this isn't just about sex. Selfish ambition or lust for power is also destructive. Immoral motives in the widest sense, they have no place in the Christian life. They're a wildfire that creates so much hurt and damage to the people involved. And it brings shame to Christ's church, his community. That's why, surely, we need to be accountable to each other, don't we? We need to figure that out in our small groups, in our relationships. To to be open, to be willing to be changed, to be prayed for, to be held to account to respond at the first point where we see desire enticing us, to ask the Holy Spirit to put to death ruthlessly those things which would derail us from God's love and give us a deeper love for him. So if these are some of the methods that Paul goes to in his gospel ministry, what's the motivation? Have a look at verses 4b down to uh, 7a. I'll just read those. We're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children, literally infants among you. What's Paul's gaze fixed on? The pleasure and delight of God. Father, Son, and Spirit. Oz Guinness, in his book, The Call, describes the liberating freedom of living and working for an audience of one. Um, Ali, I think if you flick on the slide, this will be uh, another point just for us to bear in mind. Guinness reflects on um, Andrew Carnegie, the American industrialist, whose lifelong desire was to be able to parade through the streets of the city of his birth, to prove to them that he had become fantastically wealthy. He desired to be seen and known by a human audience. Marlene Dietrich, the actress and singer, would record the applause given at the end of her performances and would then play the recordings to her visitors at her home. There's one for the progressive dinner, isn't it? When you go round, if someone puts on the MP3 of, and I got this clap at this place, she would gather her friends such as Judy Garland, Noel Coward, and play them both sides of records filled with applause, telling them solemnly which city each round of applause was from. Wow. In contrast to the fleeting worldly approval, and isn't that clear? we all need it we're all mahalines we want approval we want people to say well done and there is a well done coming for those who are in christ and it comes from the person who counts the most because for every christian particularly those in leadership we're not to be motivated by the applause of people as nice as that may be and appropriate at times we're motivated to serve and please an audience of one wherever you are we seek the pleasure of god which is given freely and on that final day we'll come face to face jesus says in matthew 25 well done good and faithful servant well done come and enjoy your master's happiness You see, the Father watches over us wherever we are and whatever we're doing. Jesus knows perfectly the realities we're in. And so for us, Jesus' saving work means we too can live under the most important, vital, and life giving gaze of God. Just let that sink in. He sees you, He wants you to see Him, He wants you to enter His pleasure. That's his delight, and that's honestly where we will find our delight. It means, therefore, we're freed to see all that we can do, everything, as an act of worship. How limiting are our thoughts when we think it's just about what we sing? Oh, my life, everything, an act of worship before the one who sees it all and receives it. Dorothy says, the um, writer put it like this Let the church remember that every maker and worker is called to serve God in their profession or trade, not outside it. The only Christian work is good work. Well done. And that's what God's prepared for us. The Father has prepared good works for us to bring to Him, to delight in Him. So working from an audience of one will stop us from tailoring the gospel to please people, it stops us from blunting the gospel. Who wants to hear that we're sinners heading for hell with Jesus as the only saviour? It's unpalatable. It always has been. But it's glorious. Paul wasn't hungry for the praise of the Thessalonians or anyone else because God's is enough. If only we'd believe that. If only I'd believe that. It stops us also from using flattery. Did you notice that? Verse 5. Why do we use flattery? To win people over. Flattery is a form of control over people. It feels nicer than bullying. But flattery is a form of control. It's the art of getting what you want by telling somebody that they are better than they really are, so they feel good about themselves, and then they serve your purpose as a reward. There's a contract there. Now, the gospel is almost the direct opposite of flattery. It tells people the awful truth that we're more sinful than we'd ever think, and we need a saviour. But then, we're more loved than we could ever imagine, and in Jesus, the saviour is offered to us. An audience of one means that we don't use flattery. We can praise people genuinely, and not seeking a kickback, or a collusion, or a be on my side. It's praise where it's deserved and given freely. An audience of ones mean we're powerfully accountable because God sees and weighs what's going on both in private and in public. He has open access to the areas of our life, our thoughts, our deeds, our motivation. No one else can see those. They're hidden. We have to trust on the final day. Jesus will see all of that and weigh it. And his grace is sufficient to cover it. We can be confident he receives and knows and refines our work. Nothing is lost. He measures the results. We're secure in his love and approval. And we're not wasting time on popularity contests and who's favorite and who's got the most friends. And is our church big enough? No. How liberating is an audience of one? And so church will you pray that we have these hallmarks? Will you pray that not just this year, but for a lifetime ahead, the audience of one is where we're going to live with that focus? That we'll find ways to hold each other accountable to this, whether we're in leadership teams, whether it's just as church members serving in loads of different ways, whether it's in our workplaces, to be accountable to each other. Because then having looked at the method and motivation, we see in these final verses, just quickly, the impact and application of gospel ministry. And it's here in Nurturing God's People, verses 6 to 12, this section here. And it is quite simply summed up as loving like a mum and dad. As these verses were read, did you sense they're drenched with compassion and care? You see, Paul, as I said earlier, didn't want to be a financial burden to the church, so he works... The Philippian Christians had sent him a gift of finance as well to help with the work, but obviously they still needed to work and earn money. His team were fueled by love for the Thessalonians to share the gospel and their lives as well, verse 8. This wasn't a hit-and-run operation. Even though it was a short visit, within a month, people got to know them well. They saw their lives lived out. There was an intentionality to the time they had together. They showed that these messengers lived their message but what does that mean for us to share our lives together how do we do that obviously you can't have intense deep relationships with everyone can you jesus himself related differently to different numbers of people the time he spent with them was different three disciples out of his 12 were in a really close group they saw things that only they got the privilege to the transfiguration Uh, praying with him in gethsemane than the other nine. But all of it counted. What about the woman who was bleeding and he just has this very brief conversation with her? But wow, that's deep. That's sharing life. A few minutes that changed everything. It's authentic though. And for me, it's really been a lesson over many years of ministry because you go crazy thinking, how do you keep up with everyone? How much do you give people? And what I've come to sort of land on is that being... A person who shares life means being present, being genuine with people at each moment, whether it's five minutes or 50 years. What you see is what you get. There's an openness and a generosity and an authenticity which we can work out. It's it's being consistent. We can share our lives honestly and lovingly. We can do that with wisdom. We want people to see Jesus at work. We want people to meet Jesus, not, not us. If we're pointing people... It is to show something of his glory. And that calls for consistency. It calls to be authentic. And I know if you followed me around constantly for seven days, you would see the good, the bad, and definitely the ugly. Which all points to Jesus' grace. Which again means we don't have to put on a show. We can be authentic and humble. We can be real about our faults. That is sharing life and sharing the gospel because it's the gospel that's the answer to those things. And this complementary picture of a mother and father is so helpful to our, uh, such a helpful antidote to our society's more corporate, professional way of talking about leadership. It's a picture that blows that away the nursing mother whose priority and sacrifice is to meet the real needs of the child. A mother rarely has time for herself because she's giving the lion's share of it to nurturing the children. And the father and mother both have a duty to teach and train their children, as Proverbs makes clear. And here Paul emphasizes the father's responsibility to be the person who comes alongside the children, to help them, to mature, to comfort them, to, to put his arm around them like the, like the sports coach who, who knows the right words to say at the right time to the player, to get them to perform, to get them to move on, to cheer them on. And there's a place of urging them as well. A strong word. That urge word is like a kick up the backside. <laughs> there's a time for the command, the imperative. And as a parent reading these verses, it, I, I was just stopped as I was preparing this. I just had to pray. I go, do I do this? Not just within my family, but beyond. This is immense. Is my life shaped by the gospel in a way that my sons can see does it speak of christ's grace or is it hypocrisy is this as a church something we're intentionally doing for each other is this a picture we hold around and pray and say this is this is the nurture this is what we're here to do for each other When we meet together, are we focused on living lives worthy of God who calls us into his kingdom and his glory? The Bible teacher David Jackman put it so well. He said, fascinatingly, the word translated glory in verse 12 is the same word as praise in verse 6. In this way, the theme is repeated, he says. "If, If I know that it is God's kingdom of glory I'm being called into, then I will not be so worried about people's praise. Can you see the loop? It comes full circle again. It's God's kingdom that we're part of and his glory that we share. And that matters above all else. So we'll want to live lives worthy of him. I want you to do the same. We should want each other, more people as well, to enjoy this gift he has given. Because we're all in Jesus' mission together. We can't do it in our own strength. And we're all in need of Jesus' love and wisdom. And that's why in a few moments after our prayer time, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Because here is a physical way of saying, I need Jesus. Here's a physical way of saying, this saviour, this king will shape my life. I want to live for the audience of one. And bread and wine become to us signs of and seals of a God who says my work has started in you it is not finished and I will complete it we take hold in this supper of the perfect shepherd savior king who gave his life so that we could enjoy the glory of his kingdom let's pray father thank you that you are the king who came to earth to save us to bring us into the joy of your kingdom father i pray lord for repentance i pray for forgiveness to be a minister who's consistent with your word is something beyond me father have mercy lord i repent of the sins that displease you i know my frailty And I pray, as someone in a position of leadership, that, Lord, you would be gracious and that you would work through a jar of clay like me. For our elders as well, I pray, Father, that you would lead them. You'd be merciful. For our church family, everyone in front of us this morning, around us, that we would be ambassadors dependent on your grace, prepared to live our lives for your glory and for the praise of your name. Father, your will be done. Amen.